0: The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. My name is Barry Pett, and I I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer, and and today I have the privilege of of filling in for Jeff. Um, He and Natalie have had the privilege of being able to go out and just have some time this week and I, I thought it was just it's so encouraging. I'm glad that, that he and Natalie were able to be here just today, just to, just to be worshipers and participants, and, and uh, I'm honored to be able to help in that way. So um, we're going to continue today in our study of Corinthians. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, and we've been studying 1 Corinthians for, for several weeks now, and today we're going to pick it up in chapter 10, verses 14-14. Through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. So at this time, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, it is not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? Are we stronger than he? Pray with me. Father, it is is with humility and reverence that I stand here today and proclaim your word before these people. God, would you bring the the life, the words that we have read and the words that I speak, would you use them to bring hope and healing to us here today? Scripture says that your word is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So would you make that true for us today as we examine this text that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when it, when it comes to preaching as a, as a lay elder, it, it feels a little like being a contestant on on the Amazing Race. You know that part when when all of a sudden they show up and they receive and get their envelopes that that they see their next challenge. So the, so the way it works is you know Jeff will contact me and confirm that I'm available on a certain date, and then and then a few days later he'll send me the text with a a text or email that has the the assigned passage, and it's almost kind of like a with a kid at Christmas kind of anticipation that I'll, you know, I'll look up the passage and, and see what my mission is. You know, what is going to consume my time and thoughts over the next, over the next days? And, you know, there's sometimes, I have to admit, that there's sometimes I'll, I'll read the passage and I'll be like, whew, okay, I think I can handle this. And, and then there's times, like this time, <laughs> where I read the passage and said, whew, what am I going to do with this? I mean, I, looked, I read the passage and I saw, I saw fleeing from idolatry and I, I saw talk of communion and demons and lots of references to being participants in various things. And I have to admit, my first thought in read it was like, how in the world do all these random dots connect? <laughs> well, fortunately for me and you, um, as I dug into the passage, the fog started to clear and I began to see this beautiful and powerful picture that this passage portrays. <clears throat> so, so let's get to work. As I began the study, it, it became pretty clear to me quickly that verse 14 is kind of the, the linchpin for this, this whole chapter from 1 to 22. It's kind of like this thesis that the whole section is built on. Verse 1 through 13 makes the case for why we need to flee from idolatry. And then essentially, our text today tells us how we are to flee from idolatry. And as we see, the text begins with the word, therefore. And we always know when you see the word, therefore, it usually is going to be, it's going to refer to something that comes before. And a lot of times, it, it typically will kind of give the, set up the, the why of what comes after. So, to quickly recap verses 1 through 13 without re-preaching Jeff's sermon from last week, we see that you know, Paul kind of takes us back to the Israelites who had experienced all these crazy manifestations of God's power and glory, right? I mean, they, they witnessed the plagues in Egypt. They experienced the Passover and the rescue from the Egyptians, including the parting of the Red Sea. They saw water come from a rock. They saw food fall from the sky. They were guided by by a cloud by day and a a pillar of fire by night. And we would think that, man, if if we saw all that, nothing would shake our devotion to God. And you would think if anybody in history would be completely devoted to God, it would be these people, right? Yet despite all of this, we read in verse 5 that nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why why was God not pleased with them? Verse 6 and 7 says, It's because they were idolaters and desired evil. And then in verse 7 through 10, it gives the details of their idolatry and the lethal consequences. Verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is quoted directly from from Exodus 32.6, which describes what the Israelites did right after creating and worshiping the golden calf. Verse 8 says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Then look what verse 11 says. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So in essence, I think he's saying here that if the Israelites who experienced this awesomeness of God like no other people in history, if those people were that prone to idolatry and experienced the devastating consequences for their sin, then don't think for a second that you are not prone to idolatry and equally devastating consequences. I mean, that's clearly the message of verse 12. It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that is the context of the therefore in verse 14. Paul is telling us this is how easy it is to become an idolater and this is how devastating the consequences are. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I love that he includes the phrase, my beloved. Because you see, this is, not a, this is not an angry rant given in frustration. Rather, this is a, this is a heartfelt warning to, to a people that he cares about and he deeply loves. I mean, it, you know, it, it's no secret that um, we naturally go to great lengths to protect those we love, right? From harm. I mean, if there, was a, if there was a F5 tornado heading right at our church right now, you can bet that all of our phones would start blowing up from friends and family from different places who saw, whoa, I know where, that, I know where that's going. And they would be calling us and warning us saying, hey, run. There's a, there's a tornado headed right at you. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He says, guys, I love you. And there is a monster coming at you. So run like the wind. The action word that we see in verse 14 is flea. And if I, if I, here's the Barry Pett definition of flea. If I were to define flea, I would say it's to create the maximum amount of distance in the shortest amount of time between you and something trying to harm you. That's, that's just me. I don't know what, I didn't even see what Webster said. Now, just for fun, I did a Google image search for the word flea. Chris Green tells me you you're never supposed to do it. It jacks up your computer, but I did it anyway, so if I, I'm, I'm sacrificing my computer for you guys. Um, so I, I did this Google image search for the word flea, and, and I think I, f- I found this image that I think pretty accurately portrays what we're trying to communicate today. <laughs> I don't remember the cows in the movie for some reason. <laughs> like, you got to love Photoshop, huh? That's, that's this image. But you know, unfortunately, I don't think that that's an image that accurately reflects how we deal with idolatry. I think the sad truth is that an accurate, if we were to have an accurate image of how we deal with idolatry, it would probably look a lot more like this, right? Andrew Peterson describes it well in a song, Hosanna, that we, we sing around Palm Sunday and Easter, And in it are the lyrics, I have cursed the man that you have made me as I nurse the beast that bays for my blood. You see, we are are far more prone to nurture, to excuse, to minimize idolatry than we are to run like Captain Jack Sparrow. Now, before we dig into the rest of the text, I think it is important that we, that we make sure that we're all on the same page exactly to what idolatry is. Again, like Jeff talked, sometimes when we think idolatry, we think of people like, like Buddhists or, or someone that's, you know, bowing down before a statue or, or something like that. And, you know, we could take a whole sermon to answer this question. Um, but I think for time's sake, we're going to refer to it as probably maybe is the clearest and most concise scriptural definition of idolatry. And we'll use, which is in Colossians 3, 5 through 6. And it says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I would contend that that all of the things listed above are examples of idolatry, But the passage makes a point of specifically identifying covetousness as idolatry. And we know that to to covet something is to love it or to treasure it above all things. Many times when we hear this word, we think of it in the context of a a coveted award or a coveted position. In spiritual terms, it's when we, we love, value, or treasure something more than we do God. John Piper puts it this way, idolatry is craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. It is a disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. In our culture, this most often comes in the form of a a person, or a job, or a sports team, or a celebrity. But you know, ultimately, these are just lowercase idols that serve the uppercase idol of you and I. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. We worship us. I mean, guys, why why are, <clears throat> why are we prone to idolize women, or even our wives? Because they please our eyes. They meet our needs. They are a pleasing sacrifice to the God of us. Why do we covet jobs or trophies? Because they feed our ego and they they glorify us. Why do we covet cars or houses or boats or toys? Because they please us. They enhance our image and and they validate our self-image. Ladies, why is it that you can be prone to covet clothes and beauty? Because being awed and desired and made much of by others is intoxicating. Why do we idolize sports figures and musicians and movie stars? Because they're like jesters in a king's court who entertain us and and allow us to indulge in pleasures. As John Owens so famously quoted, we've heard many times here, our hearts are idol factories, and we crank out idols like Toyota cranks out cars. Why? To serve and please the idol that most offends God, us. Notice Colossians 3 also gives us the primary reason why we should flee from idolatry. Verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The reason that we flee idolatry is so that ultimately we will also flee the wrath of God. God does not take kindly to us loving and worshiping the creation more than the creator, as Romans 1 so vividly describes. Why? Because nothing and no one is more worthy of our love, our devotion, and our worship than him. I mean, I can assure you that I would become very angry and jealous if Carolyn were to covet another man more than me. Why? Carolyn's my wife, by the way. it's my first year the first time. Because why would I do? Because I have completely committed and devoted myself to her. I provide for her. I protect her. No man loves her even close to the way I do. I would absolutely take a bullet for this woman. And hear me, supreme devotion can demand supreme devotion in return. You hear me? Supreme devotion can demand supreme devotion in return. And that is why our idolatry deservingly invokes the wrath of God. Because our idols are nothing but petty junk in comparison to him. No one is more glorious than him. No one is more wonderful than him. No one cares for us or loves for us or provides for us more than him. And unlike the hypothetical bullet that I would take for Carolyn... He did take a bullet for me. That's the good news of the gospel, right? Jesus, though he was, he was very God of very gods and without sin, he threw himself directly in front of the bullet of God's wrath that was headed directly for me and directly for you. Enduring the shame and the humiliation of the cross. Why? To pay the penalty for my sin. And that's not all he then imputed his righteousness to me that I'm not just forgiven and made right with God, I'm adopted as his child and I'm a co-heir of all that is his. Supreme devotion rightly demands supreme devotion in return. As the old hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. family, flee from idolatry. And that leads us to the rest of our text today, which answers the question, how? Hopefully you clearly understand why we are to flee idolatry, but we must know how and where to flee to. I mean, if I'm being chased by an angry Rottweiler, I'd better be fleeing to a tree or something else, or I can assure you my fleeing will be very short-lived and very futile. And like Jeff talked about last week, you know, if I if I stir up a hornet's nest, I would be flee, I'd be wise to be fleeing to the nearest pond or swimming hole, right? Or all I'm going to be doing is kind of getting a workout while I get stung. And the same is true for idolatry. We don't just flee blindly. We are called to flee with purpose and direction. When I first read verses 15 through 22, <clears throat> I mean, it, I was kind of confused. It looks like we were talking about, about idolatry. And then all of a sudden, Paul shifts gears and starts talking about the Lord's table or communion. And I admit, I was, I was kind of confused. And as, but as I studied and pondered the passage deeper, I began to see the beautiful truth that Paul was leading us to here. He really wasn't having an ADD moment, but he was telling us exactly where and how to flee idolatry. I remember when I was a kid um, in the church that I grew up in. They had a, a large communion table in the front. You know those classic ones. So you know we we kind of have bar tables on the side, but but that's that's okay. But when I grew up, they had this big table in the in the front, and some of you might remember this um, similar ones. And on this table, with the communion was stacked, and it kind of had a had a sheet over it, and. Uh, And and on that thing was, on the front of it was the words, in remembrance, right? You see, the Lord's Supper is first and foremost a place of remembrance. We remember who Christ is. We remember what he did for us. And we remember that we, why we are in need of so great a salvation. And I think in our text today, Paul is telling us to utilize the Lord's table as a means of fleeing idolatry by remembering three things. Remember who you're fleeing to. Remember who you're fleeing with. And remember who you're fleeing from. Who are we fleeing to? Verse 16 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, it's not a coincidence that we see the words participation, participant, and partake six times in this text. It's because we're not just, we're not just recipients of the blood and body of Christ. We are participants. Our lives are now co-mingled in one with Christ. Going back to Colossians 3, we see in verses 1 through 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The imagery here is that of of marriage. I mean, why why would an affair or adultery be lethally dangerous to my marriage? because my wife and I are now now one flesh. We are participants in every aspect of each other's lives, and it is built on the promise of exclusivity, right? Carol and I, we enjoy a wonderful life, a wonderful love, a trust and an intimacy with each other because we have promised to only have that love and intimacy with each other. Imagine if, if I came to Carol and I said, you know, honey, I love you, babe. And, and you are the main woman for me. In fact, I promise you that 364 days a year, I will be completely faithful and devoted to you. And only on one day of the year will I devote myself to another woman. You get 364 and she gets one. That's how much I love you, babe. Now, is she going to bask in the warm fuzzy feeling of my my 99.726% devotion to her? No, of course not. She's going to be fighting mad and deservedly so. Why? Because anything less than complete fidelity is infidelity. Anything less than complete fidelity is infidelity. It wouldn't matter if I gave myself to a woman only once every 10 years. It's still unacceptable. And what is true for my earthly marriage is equally true for my spiritual marriage to Christ. That's what Paul wants us to remember when we come to the Lord's table. We are participants in the body and the blood of Christ. Our lives are now now hidden within his life and anything less than fidelity is infidelity and it will not be tolerated. The way I flee from idolatry with my wife is not to convince myself not to pursue other women. The way I combat fidelity is to focus all of my attention on pursuing her to find my complete joy in her, to be amazed at her beauty, to enjoy being with her, to devoting myself to serving her, to loving her, to esteeming her as the wonderful wife and the friend that she is. And the way that we flee idolatry is to pursue Christ with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength, to be awed and amazed at his love and power and majesty. And then, as the hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. When we come to the Lord's table, it should be with the mindset of David in Psalms 27:4. one thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And again, I I think of the lyrics to the the hymn, When I Survey the Cross, the wondrous cross. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should both save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. The antidote to idolatry is to partake in the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior and to continually survey the wondrous cross and pursue the God that is so deserving of our complete love and devotion. Now, we could, we could stop right there, and we could have all the fuel that we need to flee idolatry, right? But there's more that Paul wants us to remember. Secondly, he says to use the Lord's table to remember who we are fleeing idolatry with. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, we may have a little harder time visualizing that here because some of you know, we have probably had more variations of communion bread here than I, I can't even count them. We've tried just about everything. But, but historically, communion bread was a literal loaf of bread. And it would come up, it was this, it was this, it was this singular loaf of bread. And what would happen is that people would come up, and you come up and you, everyone would tear off this piece of bread and partake of communion. And, and that's the imagery that Paul's trying to play on here. He's saying that in addition to the single loaf of bread being broken to remind us of the broken body of Christ, he says, I want you to remember also that you are one body and a family united under Christ. You know, for some reason throughout history, meals is, is a, it's an integral part of every family, right? It for, it, it, it's who we are. It's who we share meals with that defines us. Eating family, eating together as a family is is something we all strive for. Holidays are always marked by the gathering of your extended family around a meal, right? I mean, even even in school, who you eat with defines you. You all remember the high school cafeterias, right? You got the jock table, the band table, the druggie table, the popular kid table. And once you get invited to a table, high school becomes a lot more manageable. Because now you have an identity. You're a part of a group that sticks together and you have each other's backs. It didn't matter if other tables made fun of you because now at least they were making fun of a group instead of you individually. And, and, and sharing meals together does more than identify you. Dinner tables are where, where we're supposed to be on our best behavior, right? We're not supposed to fight or argue or do gross things at a dinner table. I mean, like... Why, just at the dinner table. Why are you doing that? The table is supposed to be a place of love and peace and safety and unity and identity and belonging. And Paul is saying that the same thing is true of the Lord's table. As a church, we we may be made up of a wide range of incomes and races and professions and temperaments. But when we come to the Lord's table, none of that matters. We come here as a single family of equal standing as sinners saved by grace. In high school terms, we're the redeemed table. And just as high school tables look out for each other, we are expected to look out for each other also. Fleeing idolatry is never intended to be something we do alone, but as a family. I mean, it's no secret that the worst thing you can do in a jungle is be alone, right? Right? The herd instinct in every animal knows that there is strength and protection in numbers. And what is true in the animal jungle is also true in the spiritual jungle. But strangely, what is instinctive with jungle animals has been largely forgotten by the modern church. I mean, how many people do you know that are not part of a church family who use the line, well, you know, I don't need to be a part of a church to worship God. I can do it just fine from my home or out in nature where, where I feel close to God. Well, Scripture would say that that mentality is not only selfish, it's dangerous. The Christian life was never intended to be lived in a bubble. Look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Psalms 133, 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Romans 12, 5, We, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now you tell me, how in the world does this happen by yourself in your living room or even out in nature where you feel close to God? You may be thinking, well, um, hey, you're kind of preaching to the choir here, right? So let me make it a little more personal. I think some of you, some of us in this room are essentially doing the same thing. You treat church like it's a place where you, where you show up a couple, a couple times a month to take your, your gospel vitamin pill and, and then go on our merry way, right? There are some, even here, who have been a part of this church for months or even years who probably couldn't name Ten other people go to this church, and ten other people couldn't name you. Listen to me. This is not intended to be some kind of a store where you come and consume a sermon and some music and, and pay a few bucks on your way out the door. We're a family. We're a herd. We're a people who together are fleeing idolatry. We are to to know each other and to be known known by each other so that Satan can't attack our blind side. That's why we have small groups and why we encourage accountability and confession. James 5.16 says to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. You know, to coin the old phrase from the 90s, we're to be each other's wingmen. And everyone who's old enough to remember the movie Top Gun, we all know what? You never leave your wingman. I pray that our church would be one that that reflects Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we flee idolatry at the Lord's table by remembering who we flee to and who we flee with. And finally, our passage tells us that we should use the Lord's table to remind us who we are fleeing from. Let's look again at verses 18 through 22. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the cup of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? What's He saying here? He's saying when we treasure anything or anyone more than Christ, we are now doing the very thing that demons do. And by doing that, in essence, we're aligning ourselves and now we're becoming one with them. And that's a bad partnership for many reasons. First, Scripture is clear. We can't be one with God and demons any more than I can be devoted to my wife and another woman simultaneously. Scripture doesn't stutter on this. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's also the message that Joshua gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You know, that famous passage in Joshua 24. He says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the same message we see in verse 21 of our text today. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So choose this day who you will serve. The second reason we need to remember that we're fleeing from demons is because Scripture is clear that demons exist to do three things and three things only, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And yet most of us, we treat sin and idolatry like the picture of the lady with the tiger we saw earlier. We think that we can train them, we can manage them, we can control them. This logic, however, it flies in the face of Scripture, which pleads for us to flee from idolatry and to kill sin. A week or so ago, I got got an email from Kelly Marino. Kelly and Jose are part of our family here, and and she's also part of my missional community. And being a good wing girl, she sent out a link to our group uh, of a recent sermon by Matt Chandler that, that inspired her, and she wanted to share with us. And um, in this message, Matt addressed this very issue. And one of the examples he gave was from an episode of a show that he ran across somewhere called "When Animals Attack." Anybody familiar with that? I'm not. He says in this particular episode, there was this. uh, It was about this guy who had trained a lion, and um, he trained this thing from birth. And, and now he was out here, he was walking this lion down the street like someone would, would, would walk their dog. And, and, you know, he could stop and he would stop and he would get this lion to, to, to sit and he could get the lion to, to roll over. And he could do all these things, get this lion to do anything he wanted on command. But since the show was called When Animals Attack, uh, <laughs> it's, to no one's surprise, you know, it, it, the story went south. And apparently this video captures this lion suddenly doing what you would expect a lion to do. And he attacked this woman who happened to be walking by. And of all things, she stops to pet it. And, and it's crazier yet. It says after, after the attack, they showed this video of the, of the owner that was kind of sitting on the curb. And he was, he was in shock. He said he couldn't, he couldn't understand why his, why his lion would do this. And of course, Matt said what we would say. Like, I know why. It's a lion. It's an apex predator, and this is what apex predators do. They attack things, and they eat them. And Paul is telling us the same thing in this passage. He says, when you engage in sin and idolatry, you are not training a harmless little kitten here. You're feeding a lion, and it will turn on you. That's the exact imagery you see in Peter, 1 Peter 5 eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. devour. I can assure you that neither Paul or myself are being overly dramatic here. My experience being a pastor is a lot like, like working in a mass unit. My family can attest there is there is hardly a week goes by that I'm not spending at least 10 to 15 hours a week talking to and counseling people whose families and marriages are falling apart, who've lost their jobs, their reputations, and whose lives have just become a complete wreck because of the manageable little idols that have turned on them. For some, it started with with excessively working to provide for the family. Others, it's by... You know, harmlessly spending countless hours engaged in hobbies or interests like sports or golf or computers or social media or even even fitness because you deserve some downtime. Some, it might be, you know, innocently flirting with the opposite sex. Maybe it's enjoying the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition because that's not porn, right? Or watching Victoria's Secret special on TV. It's on the networks can't be bad if it's on the networks, can it? Others, it's harmlessly consuming multiple beers when you come home from work at night because you need to relax. Or maybe it's the unprescribed pills that you need just to kind of take the edge off. I can handle it. I got it under control. The idols are countless. But the result is the same. Death destruction. And it happens everywhere. And what you notice is some of the things I mentioned here are not bad or sinful in themselves. But when they're valued as more than a gift from God and are treasured more than God, beware. Because you're coddling a killer and it's just a matter of time before it attacks So in closing, if you're you're here today and and, and you identify with anything that I've said, if your life is already crumbled or you see it in the process of being destroyed, there's hope. The journey to restoration starts right here at the communion table. As as Hebrews 12.1 tells us, this is where you lay aside every weight and sin which has entangled you and you flee from idolatry, and you run to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As the musicians and communion attendants come, as we prepare to take communion today, I pray that we look at our time of communion much differently than we have in the past. We are all sinful people living in a sinful world And we all have idols that compete for our affections and promise to make much of the false God of us, right? But the message is clear. Flee. Run for your life. The speed and passion with which you pursue Christ is equal to the speed and urgency that you will flee from idols. You can't run both north and south at the same time, and you can't glorify Christ and yourself at the same time. Doesn't happen. One object is the supreme object of your affections. Who is it? If you're here today and you're not a believer, this sermon probably just sounds like silliness to you. And if that's the case, communion has no meaning for you and you should refrain from partaking. Maybe you came to the service today and, and, and you're not sure about Christianity still got questions, but you can identify with the destruction of sin. And right now, you are sitting in the middle of the rubble that has become your life. With Every fiber of my being, I can tell you that there is hope in Christ. Repent, turn from your sin and the idols that have destroyed you and accept the free gift of salvation offered you today. Scripture says in Isaiah 118, that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He can restore what sin has destroyed. And today, you can come to this communion table as a newborn child of God and a part of a family of believers. And if you're a follower of Christ, I would ask that you take this time of communion And today will be really be in a time of introspection and remembrance. And you pray. I pray that the prayer of your heart is that of Psalms 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You see, idolatry has a way of disguising itself as, as harmless or even godly. And as you prepare for communion, pray that God will reveal and convict you of the areas of your heart that you have practiced infidelity against God by treasuring something or someone more than him. Maybe you would acknowledge that you've been selfish or foolish in your attitude towards church and this faith family in particular. And as you partake of communion today, do it in remembrance that, that when you come to this table, it is as a single family who worships together, who serves together and who takes responsibility for the lives of each other. I would close by by praying over us a beautiful Puritan prayer that I that reflects my heart and I pray it is yours as well. Pray with me. Oh God. I have no merit Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I am undeserving, but I look to thy tender mercy. I am full of infirmities, wants, sin, but thou art full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. Thou hast struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false God of self, and I lie in pieces before thee. But thou hast given me another master and Lord, thy son, Jesus, and now my heart is turned towards holiness. My life speeds as an arrow from a bow towards complete obedience to thee. Help me in all my doings to put down sin and to humble pride. Save me from the love of the world and the pride of life, from everything that is natural to fallen man, and let Christ's nature be seen in me day by day. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone precious name.